I'm not supposed to be preaching this morning. Uh, I got a call at 6.30 a.m. from Cindy Revel saying that Roger uh, is very, very sick and unable to get out of bed uh, and asked if I could preach. And she couldn't get me Roger's manuscript. Uh, and so uh, I had to decide what to do. And fortunately, uh, I have preached other parts of, of, of the Bible and, and this, <laughs> such as the passage selected. Uh, we're going to continue in our series, Shadowlands. We've been looking at the life of Saul and David, and today we were supposed to look at the fall of Saul. You know, Saul quickly rose to power, and he fell from power as quickly as he rose to it. Uh, but I didn't prep that text. And so instead, we are going to look at the fall of David, uh, the first major sin committed in David's kingship. And while uh, this doesn't explain the fall of Saul, it shows that even the best king in Israel's history was a flawed man. And it's good that we can go through this passage because over the next several weeks, we are going to be looking through many different passages from the life of David. And it's easy to start having this sense of awe about David, that he was this perfect man with no uh, shortcomings. But that is far from the truth. We will be looking in a couple of weeks at the calling of David, how he was anointed as a young, uh, we're called ruddy and handsome uh, boy. Uh, so imagine like Justin Bieber, uh, that's David. <laughs> And he was the youngest of seven sons. Uh, he had this strange love-hate relationship with Saul, which we're going to be exploring over the weeks to come. David uh, was a man after God's own heart. This is a definition of David that is key to the scriptures. He was a man after God's own heart. In scripture, he's portrayed as a warrior, as a musician, as a poet. You know, he's portrayed as the ideal servant of the Lord. You know, he's so zealous for God at one point, he's dancing naked in the streets. I mean, David loved the Lord his God with all his heart. Uh, and some, the scriptures constantly present David as blessed. Uh, hashtag blessed. OT blessed, if you must. But the story of David and Bathsheba is this abrupt pivot that rends the story of David so far. Everything has been going so well. He's had a life of blessing and love and, and fulfilling the calling of Israel. Everything is going so well. And then suddenly the narrative halts and King David commits adultery and he commits murder. It's impossible to read the story and not ask, given his track record, how did this happen? How did this happen in King David's life? David's life reminds us that no matter how closely we follow God, how many blessings we receive, no matter how noble our character may be, we remain human. And as humans, we retain the capacity to make a mess of all sorts of things if we do not continually rely upon the empowering presence of God. This is a passage about the distortion of desire. It's a passage about the abuse of power. It's a passage that explores the depths of human brokenness. One scholar, Walter Brueggemann, assesses the weight of this passage. He writes, This narrative is more than we want to know about David and more than we can bear to understand about ourselves. And yet, we need to look at these parts of our soul. 
We need these passages of Scripture because they explore our fundamental condition. But the big idea I want to explore this morning is this. We can be awestruck by the vast mercy God has for us. We can be awestruck by the mercy God has for us. So if you have a Bible, open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Job and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. There's an interesting tension right at the beginning of this passage. The troops are sent out and yet David remains. It's almost an unsolvable tension. Isn't David supposed to be leading the troops? Isn't he supposed to be out fighting the battles of Israel? And while it's conjecture to a degree, we're supposed to ask, is David where he is supposed to be? Being in the right place at the right time can often keep us from trouble. Idleness can be trouble. Living outside of Christian community can be trouble. Ceasing to be where we're supposed to be can also aid in us ceasing to be who we are called to be. It leaves us vulnerable to our own brokenness. David's supposed to be out fighting Israel's battles, but instead he stays, stays home by himself. He's resting. Maybe he's become restless. You know, he's, he's on high Ground. He can see down over Israel. And what he sees is a woman bathing. And the scriptures say she was very beautiful. It's a rare detail to get in the scriptures. She was very beautiful. And so he asks, who's this woman that I saw? Which is a strange confession to say publicly, but who's this woman that I saw? She's the daughter of Eliam. And then it's a very subtle thing the servant says the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You see, this is intentionally and dangerously hyphenated. You know, she's the daughter of one of your best fighters, David. She's the granddaughter of one of your most trusted counselors, David. She's the wife of one of your most honored soldiers, David. He's not so subtle. Dude, what are you thinking? But David, he gives way to his desire, knowingly betraying the trust of his closest community, betraying the trust of friends and people who have given blood for him. David, he betrays the law of God as the representative of Israel. And he proceeds swiftly on his way to having an affair. And you can think, how did this happen so quickly? James writes in his epistle, in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, 
It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. You see, our desires can be misdirected. They can be directed toward things that draw us away from God. And not every desire we have is good. And sometimes we need to hear that in our culture. Not every desire you have is good. Sometimes your desires can be evil and they can deceive you and they can capture you and they can entice you. And in a moment, you can be overcome in your reason. Your convictions can fall by the wayside. You can be overcome by these desires. Dietrich Bonhoeffer Uh, a great writer and theologian of the 20th century, uh, he writes this. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed and money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. You see, when we give way to our desire, When lust is birthed in our hearts, it leads to sin. This is what happened to David. He gave way to his desires. He didn't evaluate them or confess at the state of desire. Rather, it gave birth to sin and he gave into it. He embraced a way of life that is contrary to the ways of God, that separates him from himself and from others and from God. He ignored the warning and his bond offer said, God became quite unreal to him in that moment. And many of us know that. When you want to indulge in a sin explicitly that you know is against the ways of God, that you know you shouldn't do, God in that moment must become unreal to you in order for you to proceed. And the verbs in this passage, they rush with uh, ravenous action. David sent, he took, he lay. Bathsheba returned and conceived. You know, without pause or counsel, without any prayer, David just acts. And for the first time in all of the narrative about David's life, he takes everything up until this point. God had blessed and blessed and blessed him and gave and gave and gave to him. And now David takes for himself. And it's significant because it shows the time we take things into our own hands is most likely going to be our downfall. And there's no hint of caring or affection in this passage. There's just lust. You know, a great king is overcome in a moment. A woman's worth is lost. You know, she doesn't even get a name in verse 5. She just becomes the woman. No lineage, no name. And that's the danger of yielding to these sort of desires and these sort of temptations. They're dehumanizing. She goes from being called Bathsheba to the woman. David has taken away her worth by treating her like an object. And some of you here are doing that to women and you need to stop. Do you understand that you, as men, when you go online and engage in pornography, you are looking at women made in the image of God? 
They have names. They have lineages. They have fathers. Women, when you go online and look at pornography, the people you're looking at have names and stories. They have worth because they're made in the image of God. You see, when we give in to these desires, these distorted desires, they dehumanize. And that's the danger of it. But how did David arrive at this place? That's the question we need to ask. How did David arrive at this place? Was it just moral failure? We've heard of leaders, you know, they have a lapse of moral failure. But succumbing to desire is rarely out of nowhere. You know, think of your favorite snack. Say it's Dorito chips, uh, Cool Ranch. And they, Doritos doesn't sell just one chip. Right? You don't go to the store and they give you a bag and there's one chip. That would be enough, but Doritos knows that you can't stop at one chip. One chip won't be enough. You're going to eat that whole bag. You might tell yourself you're not going to eat the whole bag when you buy it, but you're going to eat the whole bag. David, he's not immune. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, there's some commands for the kings of Israel when they come. And one of the commands is don't take a whole bunch of wives for yourself, kings. One's going to do the trick. But 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13, we get a hint that David's heart is starting to go astray. He becomes king and his appetite for women increases, and he begins to take concubines and more wives. You see, the, the narrative started to hint that not all is well in David's heart in this capacity. And at this point, his character is reduced down to a man ruled by lust. Desperate, helpless, the only words spoken by Bathsheba are verse 5. I'm pregnant. Now, you have to understand the danger for her in that cultural time and place. Her husband is away at war. She's pregnant. In a patriarchal society, hyper-patriarchal society, she could lose her life. You see, we get entangled and we don't often realize the consequences of our actions until after the fact. You see, indulging in the moment always feels good, it's, it's, it's a week later or six weeks later, that you start to realize the cost of your actions. David receives the news and he knows the implication, death. And again, desire gave birth to sin and sin gave birth to death. But when we recover, you know, from the fleeting pleasures of sin, and they're fleeting, you know, they temporarily trick you into thinking this won't have a consequence, this will satisfy, this will be what you want. When we recover from that, we're at a crossroads and we have some options before us. The first option is to repent to God, to say, I'm contaminated, I'm, I'm sinful, I'm guilty. I confess, Lord, that I have done this and you come clean. But the second option is deception and hypocrisy, to cover it up. And David chooses the cover-up. He comes up with plan A. Invite Uriah back to Jerusalem and trick him into thinking that the child is his own. Bring Uriah back and get him to have an intimate night with his wife, and then all will be well. But Uriah shows a surprising, if not shocking, amount of integrity. 
He says, how could I engage in the regular affairs of life when I'm supposed to be out at war? And you can imagine this is only convicting David all the more. He's supposed to be out at war. He's supposed to be with his men. So David comes up with plan B. He tries to get Uriah intoxicated. But even drunk, Uriah shows more character than David. Plan C, order his death. Sends Uriah with his own death warrant. Has a trusted commander make sure that Uriah is killed in battle. And it's very telling in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 25, when David says to his commander, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Who's he trying to convince? Do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Is he trying to convince the commander who just carried out his actions? Or is David trying to convince himself? You see, misdirected desire, it can overcome us and it can cloud our judgment so that we end up doing things we swore we would never do. But David succeeds. Bathsheba mourns and eventually he marries her. She gives birth. Is David in the clear? Not at all. 2 Samuel verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 27. The thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, David is saying to his commander, don't let this be evil. And yet the Lord says, this is evil. And as people, we have to decide who gets to decide in our lives what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. Are you the sole uh, measure and weight? Do you get to determine what is right and wrong in your life, what you can and can't do? Or is there an objective standard that then we can't change to suit our preferences, to suit our desires? But what will it take for this good king to get out of this cycle? You know, his desires have led him away. You know, he's, he's in denial. He's trying to escape the consequences. He marries her. He's trying to, you know, show like, maybe I can get away with people not being great at math. But the reality is he's guilty before his creator and he deserves death. 1996, you may recall, uh, there was a massive snowstorm in the West Coast. Do you guys recall this? Yeah, some the people who are here are like, don't talk about it uh, too soon. <laughs> Massive snowstorm. I lived in Victoria at the time, and the year before, Victoria had decided to sell all of its snow equipment, I think, to Seattle and Vancouver. And so we were shut down. And my cousins were in town, and we decided that we would hike up this little hill in our neighborhood called Mount Doug. And it's high enough that you can get some real speed going down if you have an inner tube and a can of WD-40, which we did. <laughs> and so we went up the mountain, and it was glorious. And in my mind, you know, cool, runnings had just come out. So I'm thinking, like, bobsledding, going fast, this is going to be great. And so we took the can, and we sprayed uh, the, the inner tube. And my cousins, being smarter than me, said, Alistair, why don't you go first? And so I went, and it was just fast. I'm going down the hill, and I realized that when you're on an inner tube going down a hill, you can't navigate. You just go. And I see that I'm heading straight toward a cliff because the road is turning. And my little 14-year-old life passes before my eyes. I'm in great peril. I'm going faster. I'm getting to the edge, and then I just hit a tree. And it stopped me from sure peril, and, and, and it saved my life. And I started to cry. 
and my cousins made fun of me for a week. But I was bruised and I was grateful. Sometimes God gets our attention by sheer force. Sometimes God gets our attention by sheer force. David didn't collide into a tree. He collided with a prophet named Nathan. And God sent Nathan armed with a parable, which is in chapter 12, about a rich man and a poor man, about a lamb. And it, and it convicts David, and, and his moral vision is restored. And David says to the parable, the man who stole the poor man's lamb deserves to die. And he's just set up for the impact of Nathan's prophetic indictment. Look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbors. And he'll lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. You see, God stopped David in his tracks and he hits him with truth, but he does it to save his life. He's about to fly off the edge. He is at his own peril. He is heading toward death and God stops him with the prophet before he can go any further. You see, sin has a way of coming to the light because God has a way of loving us even in our sinfulness. But there's always a cost, isn't there? God lists out the costs for David. Because there's a disparity between the holiness of the creator of the universe and ourselves. We're not God. We're imperfect. We're broken. But God is perfect. He is completely just. And it goes back to a crossroad. David once again has a decision to make. Does he repent or does he cover it up? And you see, there's a beautiful grace here. It is never too late to repent. At any point in this narrative, David could have come clean. You know, sometimes when we've indulged in sin, we think, well, let's just keep doing it a little while longer. I've already gone so far. I might as well keep going further. But at any point, you can turn back to God and say, I've done what is evil in your sight. I repent. And David finally chooses repentance. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. We actually have an entire psalm about this event. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. David finally chooses what he should have chosen all along. Confession. He, despite letting sin spiral out of control, despite all that has transpired, he finally makes the right decision. He is honest before his creator. 
and he trusts in the love and the mercy and the faithfulness of God. But repentance doesn't mean we always walk away scot-free. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. You see, God extends mercy, and yet the judgment remains. There's a cost. You see, sin, the penalty of sin, is death, and yet the Lord spared David's life. But he's not unscarred. There will be wounds from this event. There is a high price of receiving life when we're seduced by our own desires, when we carry them out. You see, David, from this point on, will have to live with the consequence of his actions. They ripple through his family, through the nation, through his relationship with Bathsheba, the loss of the child. Life was never the same. You see, we don't always escape the consequences of our sin in this life. I wish we did. But sometimes we have to carry the cost of what we have done, and it is hard. But the consequences we do escape are the eternal ones. God is saying, I will not remain separated from you. I will continue in relationship with you. I will give you life even out of death. But God is too good and too loving to leave it here. There's redemption. Bathsheba loses a son. But God in his grace gives her another child, Solomon. And he'll continue the promises of God given to David. Through Solomon, Jesus will be born. Do you see God's grace in this? Through Bathsheba, the lineage of Jesus continues. Jesus comes from a lineage of sketchy people, which is good news for a room full of sketchy people like us. You see, Jesus carried the cost of our sin, to death, to express God's unfathomable love and mercy toward us. But here's the challenge of a passage like this. It's easy to read it, to think, whew, that's pretty bad. <laughs> pretty bad, David. Fortunately, I'm just committing varsity sins. And to not actually let the passage turn our hearts and expose what we've been hiding all along. I can relate all too well to this story. I, mean, I think just by looking at me, you can tell I have problems. It was supposed to be funny, thank you. <laughs> and so I'll tell you a little bit about my own story. And I do this not to glorify anything I have done, but to keep this in reality, to keep it in a, in a way that I hope touches down in many of your lives. When I was 22, I became a Christian, and I was living with my girlfriend at the time. And suddenly I had a dilemma, the cost of discipleship. Starting to follow Jesus caused problems in our relationship, and I had to decide, do I continue on and marry her, even though we don't share the same beliefs, or do I leave her and move out? And so I moved out, we stopped sleeping together, we broke up, uh, and then I got a job offer in Orlando in 2006, a couple of months after this happened, and I thought, 
it would probably be really good to get a fresh start. You know, the naivety of a, a new life. But misleading desire came with me. At Christmas the following year, uh, I visited my ex. It was premeditated. Uh, we connected that night. I confessed to God. It was cheap grace. And I came back home to Orlando, and I thought, okay, I've confessed to God. I've asked forgiveness. I made a mistake. I won't do it again. I'm going to keep moving forward. Joined a community group at my church in Orlando. I thought I had escaped without actually confronting what I had done. Six weeks later, my phone rings at 3 a.m., and my ex-girlfriend tells me she's pregnant, and she's scared, and she wants to have an abortion. And this was my tree. This was God's mercy in my life, although we might not see it at first. And I was struck, and I wept, and I panicked. I was terrified, and I had an option before me, an option that I know many of you are probably facing right now. Do I cover it up? Or do I repent? By God's grace, I did not cover it up. Even in the depths of my sin, even though I wanted to cover it up, even though I, I just wanted to hang up the phone and not deal with it, Holy Spirit met me in that moment and showed me the way to go. And I clung to God in faith. And so I emailed my new community group, who I had literally been in for one week, one week, and I said, this is what's going on in my life. I've bought a plane ticket back home. I don't know if I'm coming back. I have to go figure this out. And they prayed for me. And it wasn't easy. She decided not to have an abortion. It was scary, and it was messy, and we were both brokenhearted. And yet I had this community group walking beside me, praying for me, helping me, giving me strength, reminding me that even though I'm a, a sinner, even though I've dug my own grave in this, God is merciful, and he's with me even here. But there's consequences. Turning to God doesn't always mean that everything gets put back together. A few weeks later, she miscarried. And I, I wondered why. You know, why, Lord, after all that we've tried to do to make this right? And, and I shipwrecked her faith because she was thinking about Christianity and has not had a thought about it since. My dad, who's not a believer, said to me, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. Consequences rippled through my life, my family, my friends, my community. I still carry the pain of an unborn child 10 years later. 10 years later, I still think about it. It still hurts, I still mourn. And I grieve how my sin not only impacted myself, because often that's what we think. Sin just impacts me. But how it impacted the lives of people around me. And I grieve how in a simple moment I abandoned God just to indulge in temporary pleasures. Now, I wish I could say everything was resolved. Many things have. It's been a long time. Uh, I technically preached this sermon two years after that happened. And so I'm kind of updating it as I'm going. But... God has been with me, and I wouldn't have made it through that time without Christian community, without people pointing me back to the straight and narrow and saying, even though you have fallen from the grace of God, you can't outrun his grace. He's with you. He'll forgive you. Walk with him. 
I carry scars, but healing has come, and I've seen redemption. This might sound odd, but it was during this time that I met a woman in my community group named Julia. And she actually walked through this entire process with me and saw how I responded and saw how I didn't cover things up, but how I repented. And she saw, which is the title that I still am not comfortable her giving to me, a man after God's own heart. And as you know, Julia became my wife and we've been married nine years now. You see, she saw me in the depth of my brokenness. She saw me in my struggle. She saw me in my remorse. And God brought her into my life at this time to say, you cannot outrun my love and my grace. Now, I say all of this, not to to point out anything about myself, but to remind you that even leaders are sinners. That all of you have a story that I know you're trying to hide. And that some of you are actively trying to hide it right now. And you're deciding, do I cover it up or do I repent? And I want you to know you're in a community where if you repent, grace will abound all the more. Maybe you can't relate to adultery, murder, coveting. But you see this brokenness and the truth of this passage. No matter what you've done, you can return to God. But maybe you associate with David all too well. Like, do I really have to open up now? Like, can't I wait a bit longer? But today is the day the Lord has made. But maybe you simply wonder, and this is important. This sin I've committed, it's too heavy. It's too great. It's too dark. People would never understand. Is it unpardonable? Could God even forgive me? He's shown us in this passage just how willing he is to forgive sinners. He just wants us to walk back into his welcoming arms. And maybe you are wading through the consequences of sins you've committed, but you need to know you never have to walk through those consequences alone. Sin is personal, my friends, but it's never private. It affects all of us. And if sin is communal, then confession, repentance, forgiveness, and redemption is also communal. We need one another to hear our confessions, to hear forgiveness extended. There's hope in this passage. Nathan prophesies to David in chapter 12, verse 8, if all of this had been too little, all the blessings in your life, David, if all of this has been too little, I would have given you even more Do you understand what God is saying here? Sometimes you sin because you're just simply dissatisfied and bored. And God is saying, when you turn away from me, why are you turning away? Like, I would have given you so much more. And surely God has his son in mind here. Because through David, Jesus Christ comes into the world. The living water that can assuage our discontent hearts. As Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, that's what we're turning away from. All we have to do is recognize it, open our hands, and God will satisfy our hearts. He will redirect our desires and he will walk with us through the consequences because he loves us 
He has sent his son into the world to have mercy upon us. You see, we can be awestruck by the mercy of God when we recognize that we are people who need to be objects of his mercy. As long as you think mercy is just an idea and not something you desperately need to receive, you won't be awestruck. You'll think, oh, this was just an interesting passage on a Sunday morning, and then go home. But if you connect with that brokenness, if you connect with that sense of unworthiness, if you connect with that sin that you're hiding even right now, and you come to God and you receive the bread and the wine, you receive what God so freely offers to us, you will realize that you will be awestruck by his mercy. 